Welcome to episode five of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. I'd like to get a one-sentence introduction from our panel members, starting with Mohammed. Sure. My name is Mohammed. I'm a 1L at Dickinson Law, and uh, I want to go into health law. Cool. Uh, Naila? Hey, everybody. This is Naila. I'm a 1L, and I'm going to probably be a judge and sue people. Shenley? <laughs> uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Shenley Kent. I'm a 1L at Dickinson, and I am interested in uh, corporate law. And Seth? I'm a 1L at Dickinson, too. My name's Seth Trott, and uh, I'm interested in constitutional law. And then also joining us tonight is my daughter, Joanne. Uh, Joanne, one sentence bio. Hello, my name is Joanne, and I am a senior in high school. Okay, reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, Carlisle High School, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. Today's topic is free speech for primary and secondary school students. The topic was picked by Naila, but due to time constraints, the article was picked by me. Both of us have high school-aged children and can promise the rest of you that teenagers like to exercise their speech whether or not they should. The article being discussed is tinkering with circuit Conflicts Beyond the Schoolhouse Gates by Stephen Wormiel, which appeared in the Journal of Constitutional Law in 2020. First Amendment rights on college campuses come up in the news with some frequency, but less often do we think about high school and younger students. And so let's jump right into it. Uh, Joanne, briefly, what are the facts of the case in Tinker? So the facts of the case are that um, during the time of the Vietnam War, a school and in Des Moines banned the wearing of black armbands um, uh, for students in the school. Um, and uh, students continued to wear them. Uh, Mary Beth Tinker was suspended for wearing her armband. Um, and so her parents basically complained about it, made a complaint and the um, district court dismissed this complaint in favor of the school, um, and the U.S. Court of Appeals divided evenly, and the case was sent to the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of protecting the students' uh, freedom of speech. Okay. Um, so to summarize that, ultimately the school can restrict speech if it would materially and substantially disrupt the work of the school during authorized hours. Someone else want to talk about the next three uh, foundational cases, Bethel, Kuhlmeyer, and Morse. How did they modify a tinker? Sure, I'll take, uh, I'll take Bethel. Um, in Bethel uh, versus Frazier, uh, this uh, student went up on stage, was giving a speech uh, to nominate his friend for something. And throughout the speech, he put all these uh, sexual innuendos throughout it. And uh, the school suspended him and uh, he took it uh, to court. And uh, eventually it got up to the Supreme Court and uh, the district court. And I believe both this district and circuit courts ruled in favor of Frazier, but then it got up to the Supreme Court, they ruled against them and essentially said that, uh, that schools have a right to suppress lewd and vulgar speech although it wasn't a political viewpoint, but it was still lewd and vulgar. And then in the other two cases, uh, the restrictions were that in Kuhlmeyer, it was a newspaper article, and the Supreme Court found that 
a when the school sponsored speech, as long as there were legitimate uh, teaching goals, the school could edit and restrict speech in those. In Morse, uh, the students had produced a banner that advocated using marijuana, um, and the court found that it was okay for the school to restrict speech which ag- advocated illegal drug use. With that in mind, and this is kind of open, aren't there many things that a student might want to say that an official might object to that could be captured by these modifiers? I think so, yes. I think there's a lot of things that students definitely want to say or want to express, um, especially with, you know, their school sports, um, and teenagers are very, I would say, out there, and they want to be able to talk about the things that they want. And a lot of times, uh, part of growing up, I think, we learn that there are things that we may want to say, but they aren't appropriate. But of course, we still slip up a lot or we say things that may not be deemed entirely appropriate for the situation. Um, So I think a lot of those kinds of things are taken out of hand sometimes, I think. Nyla, you're a parent also. Do you think that some of these things should not have reached the Supreme Court? Um, I'm a little bit concerned about some of these parents who think it's okay for their child to bully another child online or even the one um, case where there was a speech and there's a lot of sexual innuendos inside this speech. So where I'm an advocate for free speech and I think children, teenagers should um, express themselves. There's a, there's a way they express themselves where when you are harassing another person, that's intolerable. But I, I'm okay with the one student who posted on her Snapchat and her Instagram story that she said, "F school," and she, you know, she went on a little tirade, but she didn't name the school. To me, that was her expressing her angst at that moment. But when it becomes a target of somebody else, your speech, if you're a student then that's where I'm challenged. And I'm really concerned about the parents who thought it was okay. And they fought back. That makes sense. Um, And you brought up a a good point. Um, Should students' speech that's off campus be considered under the Tinker Doctrine and regulated by the school? Or should speech happening off campus be subject to a general First Amendment right to free speech? And is online speech inherently off campus or because the students are accessing it on campus, does that make that on campus? Uh, Shenley, do you want to take that? Um, Sure. Actually, I was actually thinking about something else. Um, During the summer sessions at uh, Dickinson, they had... um, Zoom sessions where uh, students could log into, and we actually talked about this Tinker case. Um, And we got a hypo where the school district in Carlisle, um, they wanted to um, kind of have, um, uh, not a a uniform, but they wanted to ban certain clothes from students. And basically it was around, um, they didn't want students coming to school with uh, political clothes on. So like shirts that said Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, or like MAGA. 
And um, so we took the fact, we took that fact pattern and applied it to Tinker. So it was very interesting that this case came up today. Um, and, and that was all, you know, with respect to uh, freedom of speech. Um, so as far as, um, you know, I thought it was interesting that uh, all, all of the, um, all, all of the sanctions that came up happened outside of school, um, you know, at these kids' home um, on their personal time. And, you know, what is the code of conduct that a school has when the kids are not there? Um, you know, is, does that mean, why is the school, um, you know, is the perception that the school is supposed to um, discipline these kids when they're not, um, you know, in school? It, like, what's, again, what Nyla said, what's, where are the parents, you know, to kind of enforce this type of bullying? I, I don't know where that kind of ends for the school's responsibility and for the parents to pick up. I was really surprised that some of the court decisions that came out um, because of these things happened off, off school grounds. But I guess there is, um, you know, the uh, a code of conduct that students have to adhere to. And, and you know, there's, there is like zero tolerance for bullying of any kind. And I guess that to me, that was where it kind of fell into, um, not necessarily freedom of speech, but it seemed more like a, a anti-bullying to me. Okay. Muhammad, do you think that this issue really has more to do with parents enforcing uh, students acting in a reasonable manner and preventing bullying? Or is this a speech issue? I think the main issue really stems from, uh, I, I'm not that far separated from high school. I'm only 21. So I remember my days pretty well is that we didn't really know what we were expressing or how we were expressing it. We kind of just, my friend group and I just kind of said whatever came to our mind right away and tried to express it in like the most in your face way. And I think that's where the main issue arises is that um, at that age, you don't really understand that there's, there's free speech, but free speech with consequences. I mean, we, we said some dumb things, um, we use like strong language all the time to advocate for what we believe was right uh, or just because we thought it was cool to do and like have a say in the world but we didn't really know what we were standing for and we just i mean in hindsight it was just us trying to be loud and act like we matter like not that we matter but like act like we had like these amazing ideas but we weren't expressing them right and we were just saying them to be cool you know what's interesting about this is that the types of cases are we, you know, with Tinker, we have children that are speaking against the Vietnam War, right? That's it's the Vietnam War, correct? And they're using this rule about what causes a disruption to address bullying or a student expressing themselves about how they don't want to be in school, how school is driving crazy, or a student who is putting two teachers on blast for I don't know, was it a romantic affair or something that happened on campus or were they say, or they, it was even found to be true. I, I don't think that one was true. I think that, that was, was just, uh, it was crude. It was, it was crude. crude. Uh, yeah. So like, so where I'm challenged is how I, I firmly believe that students, regardless of the age, should be able to express themselves about political events and they should be allowed to protest, right? And regardless if that's a disruption disruption or not, we need to define what kind of what kind of disruption is okay, what kind is not. In my opinion, I am not gonna allow a disruption that's gonna 
target one person or one group of people and they can cause a hostile environment. But I'm also at the same time gonna uphand, uphold a student's right to protest to wear a BML shirt, even a MAGA. I don't appreciate I don't agree with MAGA, but they're allowed to wear their their trunk shirt, right? That's politics. Now if they were gonna wear the Proud Boys, which we already know that they are a hate organization, even though they support Trump, that's where we go off a little bit to the left because they are advocating against killing and hurting other people. You understand what I'm saying? So we need to differentiate. So in the case of uh, Perky Omen, that was the one where the student put together a a rap music video using uh, scenes from one of the school shootings. And that one did cause a panic amongst the parents in the district. Um, Would that, but it was entirely online. It was never expressed at school. Does that seem like something that should be a matter for the school or should that be a matter for the police in that area? Both. That's hard to say. I, I think that that, I mean, I think if it was a credible or reasonable threat, like, um, you know, you ha- you can never be too careful. Um, but it's just, I mean, you would hope that, uh, I mean, I, I know we're dealing with, you know, children who are still developing and growing and their maturity level is not that high. And they probably thought that this was funny. Um, but those are the type of things that you you shouldn't joke about. And I think that it, it is incumbent upon parents to kind of stress those type of things. But again, like going back to what Muhammad was saying, like, you know, like some kids just want to say funny things and, you know, really push the envelope. So I don't think that they understand the magnitude for some of the unintended consequences that can come about because of some of the things that they do. Um, but with a threat like that, that's pretty serious. It warrants um, a police investigation. I don't know if it warrants an arrest because it is a child, um, but it does warrant an investigation given all the school shootings. So I actually have a... Oh, go for it. Okay. So this is the case about the student who um, took a video scene from what a movie and put over the song, I think, Pumped Up Kicks over top of that. Is that the one we're talking about? Yes. So I personally have seen this video um, and I know this song very well. And I think students who go around seeing the song or like advocating that it's like a good song or whatever that is cause for concern because of the violence the gun violence and school shootings that we have experienced so often in schools in america and i will say as a high school student now who um knows the song well um and who still has to go into lockdown sometimes because of the fear of school shootings and stuff i say it's more of a matter for police involvement because i think if it were at school if the school dealt with it it would cause more disruption, um, more rumors to spread because it's in school. But if it's handled outside of school um, with the correct people, the police, um, that could 
potentially stop something from something bad from happening. So I think that kind of thing is a matter for the police to get involved with. Mohammed? I kind of just double down on my last point and share a quick story. Um, it's actually happened in my home city, which I will not name, but um, it was another high school that a lot of my friends went to, and it was really close to about 10 minutes away from where I went. And um, it was uh, senior pranks. And I was probably in my sophomore or junior year around when this happened. And this, the other high school students for their senior prank made like a copy of the uh, school website and they just like wrote a bunch of stuff on it profanity. The high school didn't care. Nobody really cared until somebody wrote something about like a bomb being on campus. And um, from what I heard from my friends that went to that school who were seniors when that happened, they said that they knew the guy who wrote that and he purely wrote it because he thought it would be funny. And just like the school would go into lockdown for like 30 minutes, everyone would be like all freaked out. And then it would just be a good laugh later. But it turned into a whole ordeal where their school was closed for a week. The bomb squad was there. Our school got put into lockdown just because of proximity issues. So, I mean, this kid wasn't actually thinking that this would happen. He thought it would be like a 30 minute, haha, that was really funny. But it turned out being this whole ordeal. Seth, you have a background with technology. Do the technology companies that provide these online platforms have any type of responsibility here? I think that's a debate that we're having, especially today with, with Facebook just announcing that they're going to take down political advertisements, um, or I think right after the election, between the election and the election results coming up here in November. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure where I stand on that issue yet in terms of um, social media platforms limiting speech. Um, I I think there's, like everything, I think there's a line. Um, Hang on. <laughs> Uh, but where that line is, I think, has yet to be determined by by myself and by society in general. In the last Ninth Circuit case, uh, the Eugene case, the court applied Tinker when the harassing speech took place near the school grounds a few minutes after school had let out, suggesting that the Supreme Court anyway would consider that proximity and time and place to school could be a factor in determining what rights students might have. In Muhammad's example, his school was near uh, another school that was having a bomb threat, and that was proximity and space um, and time as, as well. How far from school in both time and space does a student have to be to not still be regulated by the school? Shannon? A, grad, a graduate, sorry. Graduation. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good point. I, I, yeah, graduation. <laughs> that's when you're more developed and you have a better sense of what you're doing. Well, this is interesting, though, because another I was thinking about another situation that I was kind of like um, at close proximity to. Um, this happened on Facebook. I didn't know these people, but someone had tagged me in a public post. And this woman, um, she lives in like rural Pennsylvania. Uh, she was a white woman. And she has biracial children and um, they are, you know, there wasn't a lot of black people or people of color where she lives. And um, this was right after George Floyd was killed. Um, there was a George Floyd challenge on social media. And um, I guess what happened was uh, two of these kids who were in this woman's uh, daughter's class, you know, they were doing this George Floyd challenge. And that was basically like a friend would lay down on the ground and the other one would put their knee on the person's neck and they would take pictures and post it on social media. So um, the woman's daughter saw it and she was, she told her mom and 
her mom went to the school and reported it to the school um, and also then took to Facebook to make a public post about it and I had seen it. And the woman was upset because the school wouldn't do anything about it. And I remember thinking, what is the school supposed to do about it? Like, you know, this was right in the middle of the pandemic. School, there was no school. Uh, school had let out. Um, and she wanted the school to do something. I was like, to me, it would seem more appropriate if this woman would go to the parents. Like, why is she going to the school? And someone did ask her that. And she was like, well, I just want the school to acknowledge that, you know, these things are happening. So I, I, I don't know, like, I mean, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, like, was she looking for like an extension of parental guidance? Um, like, again, I don't understand why she wouldn't just go to their parents if she had a problem with it. Why did she take it to the school? And the school refused to do anything about it. They were like, you know, this didn't happen at school. We're not in school. There's nothing we can do about it. They have their first amendment, amendment rights. And she was just like very upset about that. So like Anthony and Naila, like what, what would you guys think as parents? Like if you had access to something like this happening, would you feel compelled to go to the school or would you feel compelled to go to the parent directly to address the situation? Anthony, you want to go first? Uh, I, I can. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I think that I would generally, if it happened off school, it was not like something that happened at school or on the bus or something like that. Um, I, I would hope that I would go to the parents. I wouldn't, I, I would go to the parents as long as I was able to have a way to contact them. Um, I think that it's been a thread through all of this that the parents have a lot of responsibility and parents, when, when you are a parent, you do know that you are responsible for what your child is doing and saying and doing on the internet you try and keep them from doing things that are going to haunt them for the rest of their life on the internet um so now um i'm going to the school um now at that moment in time we're in a pandemic so the kid can't really get suspended however it is it's still um creating a hostile environment and the school is responsible for sending out an email blast or something saying we're not going to tolerate this insensitive behavior by any students because it still can be a distraction while they're online learning you know they all could be in a, you know middle of a zoom classroom period and they could be texting during that they could be looking at the, the sole black child during that that's making an uncomfortable space for the, I guess, the, the mixed child that went to that school. I think that in this situation while the school refused to do anything is because the school had hardly any black people or any people of color and, or mixed people or any diversity. And they didn't feel an obligation. They had no sensitivity towards it at all. And, you know, they weren't exposed to it. And there was no accountability. So, um, and then of course, you know, you go to the parents, it's something to the parents that, you know, with that kind of behavior, he might be, the child might've been getting that from home. What, what response will we get from the parent? But definitely it's the school's responsibility to ensure that all of their students feel comfortable. Now, had it happened during the um, summer time and that student's returning, I would, as a, a principal of a, of a school, I would totally acknowledge that we're not going to have, we're not going to say anything like that in a public forum. Seth? I think, I think that story that uh, Shenley shared is, is 
pretty interesting because it's, it's almost like the parent didn't want to full on go to the police, but they also thought that it rose to a necessary level of authority, um, you know, above just a, a parental sort of level. And and so I guess she must have identified maybe, I mean, potentially she just identified the school as like the next, that intermediate level of authority. And, um, you know, that begs the question of is, is the school that authority, you know, or, or is, should the parent kind of usurp those rights and it be just parent? And then if you have to go beyond that, you go to the police. Um, you know, there, um, that child could very well have needed therapy, have post-traumatic stress, um, something from that, from that challenge and seeing that a classmate they had to see on Zoom daily that could actually affect their learning and how they were going to thrive in school. And that's why I would think that, well, additionally, that the school should have zero tolerance for it, but how the actual effects of that post can affect that individual child's ability to learn. I agree. I, um, I think in that case that uh, the parent was right to go to the school because I feel like even though they weren't in person, that kind of thing should not be tolerated, like you said. Um, and I feel like the school has that kind of responsibility to, um, you know, like send out an email to all the parents letting them know that there are students doing these horrid things that could potentially mess with the mental health of their children um, and that that kind of thing cannot be tolerated. Um, and I feel like going to the school um, gave them the chance to um, explain to all the other students and parents who potentially did not know about um, the post. So I feel like definitely right to go to the school in that kind of situation. Back to Shenley. Uh, any further thoughts on that? No, I, I think it's interesting, um, all of you guys' point, uh, especially Seth. I thought that that was interesting about, you know, like what is the pecking order of authority? You know, like you can't, it doesn't rise to the level of like going to the police, but like, I guess, she felt that it was some type of like bullying situation so that she needed to go to the school about it. Um, and I, I do think that, I mean, her social media posts went very far from their small community. Um, you know, it wasn't even just, uh, it wasn't isolated to that. It was, it was all over the place. People were commenting on this for weeks and um, it was, it actually took away from, I, I don't know, um, the, the, the girls, parent got on there and said that, you know, this is not learned behavior. This is not how we teach our children. And then they said that, unfortunately, we can't even turn this into a teachable moment because then their children started getting bullied and they were worried about their health and mental, uh, their health and well-being. Um, so it just kind of like, I, I don't know what happened at the end, but uh, it was it was definitely something interesting. Um, and then with respect to the, the Tinker case, like, again, like what what, what is freedom of speech for students, where does it start, where does it end, I guess. I really do think that it's, the, it's going to be incumbent upon the Supreme Court to really step in to kind of like clarify, um, uh, to, to make precedent of what 
what is acceptable and what isn't because it, it really seems like there's like a really gray area at this point. Um, and it, it'll just be interesting to see how this unfolds. You know, one thing said, you know, um, the, they're, they can't make it a teachable moment because their kids were getting bullied. You can't bully a bullier. You can only hold a bullier accountable. And their children were being held accountable for their crash, racist behavior by that post. They weren't being bullied. Um, but on subject about the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court is keeping their distance because they know how far this could go with the restrictions of the freedom of speech of our amendment right. They're, you know, they're, maybe they are trying to be vague because they are the Supreme Court in this land and whatever they say goes. There's ways you can reverse the federal courts, the district courts, you know, you can, be, you can reverse all of, all of those courts. But once they put something down, then it does no longer become subjective. And then someone can easily abuse what they say. So it becomes quite challenging. And that's a good point. In the end, um, are we at a point where you think that the Supreme Court needs to lay out new standards for schools regulating online and off-campus speech? Um, let's go ahead and start with Seth. Um, so I'm also torn on this too. Uh, I, I think I think by denying the sort of the certiorari to a lot of these different cases that have come up, it's it's obviously them saying that they don't want a rule, and it. I don't know why that maybe they kind of lament the Tinker decision a little bit. Maybe it's kind of political in the political environment today. Maybe it's um, kind of waiting to see how society responds kind of naturally to this new adoption of social media and this new issue going on and see what we can work out before they try to step in. Um, but it's also, I think, and especially if you look at the Tinker rule, you, it says um, substantial and material disruption. And, and you know, I think I, I like that rule because it is very place specific, right? I mean, what is something that's going to be a material disruption in, uh, you know, New York City versus Des Moines, Iowa? Um, those two things are going to be very different. So for the, for the court to step in and start laying out specific rules from, from top down, from the um, you know, the breadth of the nation, uh, it, it's going to, especially today where, where opinions are so divisive and everybody's got their, you know, it takes pride in, in disagreeing, I suppose. I, I wonder um, maybe if they're just kind of stepping back and waiting to see what happens. Yeah, I, I agree with what Seth said. I think it's probably um, a really toxic environment right now and so tribal and just really, um, um, I mean, until I think that, I, like I said, I think the Supreme Court is probably going to have to take this up to really give clear direction and precedent, but I don't foresee it happening anytime soon. And I'd be curious to see, um, you know, like what, what the decisions are, like if the court will be split or if it will be, you know, who, who would um, go in what favor. Um, but it would definitely, it's definitely something that I, I would like to see happen just because of um, the direction of just how things are right now. Okay. Naila? So, I mean, the, the challenge is our First Amendment right and hate speech. And hate speech is protected. Um, but hate speech can cause a hostile envi environment. So, and also hate speech can evolve depending on the leadership of the country. 
um, in the, the majority of society. Um, so it, we ha I, in the environments that I am in, um, I do believe that we need to have some sort of sensitivity training where we understand and define what exactly is our society's definition of hate speech and where, where it could go. Um, and I do think there's a workaround that the Supreme Court can do. It can be, it can be general, you know, but there has to be something because some of these, I'm watching videos and people will be calling their racial epithets and they're getting their face punched out. That that hate speech has now caused a crime and hate crimes are not protected. Where, you know, maybe we could have prevented that crime if we prevented the speech. So okay. I just need to figure out something. Joanne? Um, I will say I completely agree with that. I think there should be a point where uh, speech is no longer um, protected. A hate speech um, very, very often leads to hate crimes. And I feel like had there been a, I don't know, a line drawn where people should um, just not say anything, we could prevent um, crime. So I think maybe, maybe the Supreme Court is waiting to see like what that line should be uh, before they try and, you know, really take it on head first. Um, yeah. Okay. And with that, we are out of time. Thanks again to our panel, uh, Naila, Shanley, Seth, Muhammad, and Joanne. A reminder that you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. If anybody wants to tell us what this MySpacing thing is that the courts kept going on about, you can Twitter us at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. Audio post-processing was by Muhammad Salim. See you next time.